Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by one of the producers for MLS Assist. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Wow, that is a specific and on-topic introduction. And accurate. It's also true. <laughs> so we are recording this episode July 8th. Um, MLS is back, has not kicked off. So at time of recording, MLS is back is not officially back. <laughs> But if you want to hear all about all the action at MLS is back, you've got to listen to the Total Soccer Show spin-off podcast, MLS Assist, starring Joe Lowry and Jordan Angeli. Where can people find that, Taylor? They can find it in their own iTunes feed, Mr. Grove, which is what yes. you have to do. You have to do some searching and then you have to subscribe. You have to. It's mandatory. It's not in our feed anymore. Nah. You have to go out into the world, into Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your podcast player is. Search the words MLS Assist and you will find MLS Assist and you will get reviews of all the action every single day from Joe and Jordan and you'll be making a really wise choice. You will. I mean, I initially thought that our spinoff show should be about like a gritty origin story about how we came together. You <laughs> maybe had the better idea of it should be a tactical analysis of things happening in Major League Soccer and the trends and the individual players and the coaching hires and all that good stuff. <laughs> that one makes a bit more sense for what we're actually doing. No one needs to see a show about my teenage years. Nah. <laughs> nor, just, nor mine, my friend. Nor mine. It's just a lot of oversleeping and being late for class. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an inspirational story. And as honestly. I learned in our conversation with Ryan Bailey, for me, mostly bad music as well. And I don't think I need to go back <laughs> yeah. and revisit that either. Oh, yeah. Keep an eye out for that. We are on, what was that? I believe the show is called Day Drinking with Ryan Bailey. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's called... It's, it's Between Two Ferns, I think is what it's called. <laughs> it's Between Two Pints Oh, okay, with, right. with Ryan Bailey. I don't know when it will be published, but sometime in the next few days, I believe. We basically give all kinds of advice to the upcoming Charlotte MLS team, mm-hmm. which I hope they take. I hope yeah. they sign Hugh Roberts. <laughs> that, was, that was great advice. I'm really happy you brought that up. It's, I, I really, really mean it. I think yep. Hugh Roberts can play in MLS. I think Charlotte could get him without paying, without, you know, paying over the odds. Mm-hmm. You get an what I believe is an MLS quality defender. Yeah. Let's not go unpaid internship though, route, right? We should, he should definitely get some money. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, okay. he should be like six figures at All least. Right. Yeah. All right. I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm good with that. Should we talk about other American players? So the talk of the town, mm. the town being London, is Christian Pulisic. Christian Pulisic um, had a great goal in Chelsea's 3-2 win over Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. He won a penalty a few days earlier um, against Watford. And we're all really excited about Pulisic's performances at Chelsea. Today's a listener question special. And not by coincidence, I don't think, we have a lot of questions about Christian Pulisic to kick us off. Not all, it's not a whole Pulisic show. There's other stuff to be discussed. But let's start with the Pulisic questions, Taylor. I like that idea. I now understand what you mean. But for a moment, I was like, yes, guy who compiled the questions. It's not random that we have four <laughs> Pulisic questions. Then I realized what you meant. Yes. Much well, interesting Christian Pulisic. Uh, on both sides like of the I, pond, I would say. It isn't like I had to like go through our archive and pull out these Pulisic questions. These all have come in in the last few days. You know what I mean? People are genuinely interested to ask Pulisic questions. They are. And I, I think we are interested to answer them. Let's start with Raghav Gupta asking, has Christian Pulisic been Chelsea's best player since the restart? This is a good question to ask because I think it gets into um, a bit of self-examination for us. Is Are we all just excited about Pulisic because he's American and we're not paying attention to anyone else, right? Are we all assuming he's the best player just because he's the one we're watching all the time? No, he's and- the best. 
I would argue Willian's got a good argument to be at least equal with Christian Pulisic over these last few games. My actual uh, is yes, next question, but my longer answer, it's either Pulisic or Willian. Okay, so we're on the same page yeah. then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. A lot of good performances, right? Yep. I think Mason Mount's been pretty good. Ross Barkley's been really good. Um, I've kept an eye on him. Aspilicueta's been his usual self, right? Um, Olivier Giroud, unexpectedly, has been starting and scoring. But I think we're right, I always do, um, that Pulisic and Willian are kind of, I want to say neck and neck for uh, Chelsea's best player right now. That's not a bad thing if you're Chelsea. No, it's certainly not. I think the edge gets like tipped in Pulisic's favor because of his youth and because of the expenditure that brought him to Chelsea. That it feels like he is returning on that. Seems like now it's a good business, and I think if you're a Chelsea fan, it maybe gives you even a bit more optimism that, oh, okay, maybe the board does know what they're doing because suddenly <laughs> he's playing very, very well. And then, yes, there's the American bet to it as well. And well, just to focus on William for a second, because there's going to be a lot of Pulisic yeah. talk in the next few minutes. Um, he is, for those who don't know, his contract originally expired June 30th. Yep. It was extended to, I believe, the end of August um, because Chelsea are theoretically still in the Champions League, right? Even though they're 3-0 down after the first leg <laughs> to Bayern Munich. And I believe Willian does want a longer-term contract and wants to stay at Chelsea. So in some ways, this is almost like an American sports-style thing where Willian is playing for a new contract. Yeah, I think the... The determinate factor will be which of those two things is the greater priority, a long-term contract or staying at Chelsea? Because I think yes. that is the impasse right now, right? Is that he wants, I believe I saw three years at a minimum. That is not yeah. necessarily what Chelsea are prepared to offer at the moment. Yeah, I think they wanted one year. And they've already got um, Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner on the way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not as if they're short of um, attacking talent. I, I would, again, also make the argument that Willian has been um, more... Um, equally productive, more yep. or less, right? Mm-hmm. They've both got like a handful of goals and a handful of assists. But I want to say Pulisic has been losing the ball a lot more than Willian. Do you think? Yes. Like every time I watch Willian, he is making things happen, but in a more graceful kind of way. I, that's, that's my argument. Whereas Pulisic, he's been very direct and he's running at people and he's making things happen. But a lot of Pulisic dribbles end up in a ball loss. And it's okay because he's producing results. Whereas Willian is producing results and being a bit more ball secure, I would say. I'm going to be very open and honest here and say that I think I was still, even while trying to be like, I'm going to take off my red, white, and blue blinders on this one, still pretty much had them on. Because you saying that sort of hit me for a moment of like, what? what's he saying now? And then I was like, oh, right, I haven't maybe really thought critically about this. Yeah, I now realize you are probably correct that we have seen some of that Pulisic taking people on and getting by them or drawing fouls, but I have also seen those miscontrols or him trying to dribble into somebody and maybe not coming away with the ball. And that might not be the best thing, whereas maybe Willian is a bit more efficient on it. I guess that always goes back to, is his manager okay with him taking those risks or is that still an area of concern for Frank Lampard? And here's, here's my final um, piece of evidence for Willian. Between Willian and Christian Pulisic, only one of them has destroyed Gary Cahill's hamstrings. <laughs> is that a hard thing to do? Did you see that moment? Uh, no. So this is for the first goal against Crystal Palace. Um, Reese James bends a ball in behind that Willian runs onto. Uh-huh. And Willian's running at Gary Cahill. And as Willian accelerates sort of around, down the outside... 
Cahill tries to stay with him and just pulls up and holds his hamstring and starts punching the floor. Oh, um, and it turns yeah. out, I think he's right. torn his hamstring, so he's in all sorts of trouble. William squares it, Olivier Giroud finishes it, 1-0 to Chelsea in the fourth minute. There we go. See? I mean, destroyer of worlds, destroyer of hamstrings, William. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that I was sort of factoring in there is that he has been, William, uh, very good in creating goals, also scoring goals and scoring penalties. And then I was realizing that like the penalty he has against Watford, Christian Pulisic draws. I would say Christian Pulisic heavily involved in the penalty against Manchester City. So I think maybe his involvement in those penalties, even if he's not on the score sheet, is again why I was maybe leaning towards Pulisic. But I'm with you. I think we can say it's 50-50. Yeah, and it's okay. It's okay that Willian is, has maybe been slightly better. It doesn't mean that Christian Pulisic hasn't been absolutely brilliant in the literal sense of the world, in that he's shining bright. Yeah, I mean, imagine this conversation like last spring when Pulisic was moving to Chelsea, wasn't really playing regularly for Dortmund. I think the best case scenario we could have imagined is a debate about is he their current best player between him <laughs> and a Brazil international? Yeah, I'll yeah. take that. I'll take that. It's better than the why isn't he playing conversation. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> or what so, does he need to, do, need to do to play more? Or is he injured? Or does Frank Lampard not like him? Yeah, I'm glad to not be talking about those things. So let's get into the details of what Pulisic is doing with the mm-hmm. next question from Josh Handelman. Josh Handelman says, I asked this question mid-season around when Pulisic had his hat-trick, that's against Burnley, and was starting to play well. But it seems like he's leveled up again. And here's the question. Can you guys talk about what Pulisic is doing differently, mm-hmm. even from when he was playing pretty well before he got injured? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I want to use this question, Taylor. I want to use Josh's question for us to really get into a conversation about what it is that Christian Pulisic is doing right now that is so effective and is uh, catching so much attention and is getting us all so excited. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I have two sort of specific like uh, viewable things, you can watch them happen and see them happening. And then I have one sort of intangible thing that I think factors into it as well. All right, I'm here for tangible and intangible things. All right. Uh, well, then I'm going to start with his movement. And credit goes to at uh, Waki underscore, W-A-T-K-E underscore on Twitter. And for Daryl for uh, bringing that account to my attention because there are some great sort of selected videos of Pulisic on the ball, Pulisic off the ball. Uh, it's not just his teammates not passing to him. He is deliberately shown not being oh, on the ball. My, my favorite thing is people's reactions to the Pulisic off the ball videos <laughs> is people saying he's, he's not even touching the ball in this video. I agree, except I think also the the creator, Watke, has then been getting some abuse for like, why are you only showing the bad moments? These aren't highlights. And it's just like, yeah, that's not the point. Yeah. I, think, I think there was a post of like, it still hurts my feelings. And I was like, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> and, and just to double down on that, sorry, I know mm. I've derailed us a little bit, no, but a lot of those videos are Pulisic like coming in from the left, mm-hmm. drifting inside, bringing defenders with him. And then the ball gets switched out wide left to like yeah. Alonso or Aspilicueta or the overlapping left back who suddenly has space because Christian Pulisic has created it by drifting inside, right? Yeah, we are. So if you know how to watch those videos, you'll see that Pulisic is doing that off the ball stuff really, really well. Yeah, and that's, and that's where I want to go with it. I want to talk about the way he is constantly reevaluating his positioning. It really is by the second. It is always in relation to where the ball is. And it's easy to take that and think, oh, he's ball watching a lot. He's just reacting. It's not that. It's that he seems to be so well versed at this point in what Frank Lampard wants and how Chelsea are going to attack that he is able to adjust his runs and adjust his positioning to then maximize his opportunities. And simultaneously it seems as though he knows, oh, I'm playing with this person. They like to make a near post run, so I'm going to hold off. Oh, this person 
makes a run to the back post, so I'll go near post. That may well be choreographed, rehearsed in training, but it's still a thing that I think the variety of the ways that he is adjusting to the ball is yeah. a big problem for defenses, and I think it speaks to his confidence, which is the intangible thing, that I think we've seen so much greater confidence from him as he gets more minutes, as he plays better, and as he plays consistently, that I think he then believes that what he is doing is the right thing and if you are going from like i think this is the right run to like i know this is the right run to not even having to think about it it's one less thing you're having to think about and i think his acceleration also makes a big difference there because he can then close that gap when he needs to or open it up more if that's the case as well i think he's been the biggest beneficiary of the coronavirus break Right. So not only has he got to just train more with his Chelsea teammates, he's got to finally get fully fit. Yeah. Right? I believe we've talked about this on the show before, so I won't belabor this point too much. But he arrived and Frank Lampard basically said that um, he just played in the Gold Cup and he came too early. And I thought maybe he was a bit tired. Right. And that's one of the reasons he didn't play too much to begin with. Then he got the adductor injury in January. So this is the first time where Pulisic has been fully fit and fully fresh. And he's now got the benefit of, you know, getting really, really familiar with his teammates. And I think those are all the, um, I think those are tangibles or intangibles or somewhere in between. But those semi-tangible things, that's, yeah. what we're, <laughs> that's what we're seeing on the field now. So when you talk about him being familiar with where his teammates are going and making runs that, you know, that dovetail beautifully with that, that's, that's part of what we're seeing. And I know that he is a millionaire, so he doesn't have a lot of the common problems that we face every day. But it is worth noting that <laughs> that speaks volumes that he is sort of thriving in the post-coronavirus or post-shutdown like uh, uh, times because it could have easily been that he moves to a new city. He's still very young. Maybe he doesn't know that many people. Now he's literally isolated. It could be a negative he's thing. He's standing on the wrong side of the escalator when he's going down on the underground. Obviously a thing that could happen to anybody, but especially to an American. <laughs> and, and, and I think that it, you haven't seen that. You haven't seen him sort of withdraw, pull away. He's been posting videos of him dancing and him being involved in social yeah. media and in video games with teammates, uh, both international and at club level. And then I think that he's come back, maybe put on a little bit more muscle, looked a little bit fitter, looked a little bit healthier, and thus looked more productive. Let's talk about what he's actually doing um, sure. on the ball then, right? I mentioned earlier that he is dribbling a lot and he's mm -hmm. losing the ball a lot. And I believe you said, you basically hinted that that's okay if that's what Frank Lampard is letting him do. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident that we're both right here. That yeah. Christian Pulisic has been given... Uh, so 007 has a license to kill. Uh, number 22 has a license to thrill, right? <laughs> Frank Lampard has said, you dribble at, dribble at people. Yeah. You scare people. You make opposition defenders panic. Doesn't matter if sometimes you lose the ball because we're going to see results from it. And we absolutely are, right, in terms of goals, assists, and penalties won. Yeah, because it's not a regimented system like, say, Louis van Gaal, where it's limits on number of touches, playing as an individual is to yeah. sacrifice the common good. It's oh, not Lampard just is Mourinho the least ball. van Gaal coach ever, I think. Right, exactly. And that is of fundamental importance, is that he is, a, he is a player, or he's a coach who, as a player, wanted to have a little bit of freedom, wanted to kind of roam around. Functioned very well in the Jose Mourinho system, don't get me wrong, but I think definitely has embraced a much more attack, uh, attacking freedom, attack-minded game plan when it comes to Chelsea and when it came to Derby. And I think you, if you're going to do that, then you can't simultaneously say, but you can only lose the ball twice, otherwise you can't dribble anymore. Because yeah. right there, you're limiting the creative freedom and the creative ability. Well, here's the other thing I want to talk about then. Um, why is Christian Pulisic's dribbling so 
effective. Yeah. Like, why has he been given the license to thrill, right? Like, James Bond, not everybody got the license to kill that James Bond got. So why why is Christian Pulisic the one who gets the special license to thrill, right? Because he's yeah. he won, like, two penalties in, what, the last... Uh, against Watford and against West Ham, right? The two mm. previous games to the Crystal Palace game. I want to know sort of how he's making that happen based on your observations of Pulisic dribbling with the ball. It, it's It's fairly simple, but I think I've never seen acceleration and deceleration more exemplified and the importance of them in a player the way I have with Christian Pulisic. That, that he feels has, right to me. He can, because it's not just that he has the speed to get away from a defender. It's the quickness that he has to evade a defender or just to open up space or even to hold off and then close that space to pounce on an opportunity. But simultaneously, like we saw uh, against Watford when he draws the penalty, it's stopping on a diamond, cutting back, and then basically just getting cleared out by a defender yeah. because they did not see that sort of deceleration coming that variety Kapu, right? in speed Kapu yeah. just came charging in because he didn't see the cut like, the change in acceleration was yeah. like 100 to zero and facing the other way right and I mean, Kapu it was just ridiculous. comes in and charges into his shoulder accidentally it was like a looney tunes cartoon of like he's yeah. there and he is no longer in shot because he has been carried out of frame <laughs> thomas muller got the wrong player with the roadrunner maybe <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think honestly the, the change in acceleration i think might be the most important thing we've got i'm thinking of the goal he scored against manchester city mm-hmm. there was the change in acceleration that tricked benjamin mendy right as he accelerated um away from him um i think the uh the penalty against uh, west ham he sort of slows up a bit and then bursts and then diop catches him i think yep. that change in acceleration is really important and then the goal against crystal palace there's a change in acceleration where he slows up a little bit. I think it's Ward as the Palace defender comes out to him and then he just goes down the outside and before Ward knows what's happening, Pulisic's created enough space mm-hmm. to get that left-footed shot away. Yeah. Why, why is he capable of doing this in a way that other players aren't? Is there something he does with the ball? Is there a, why, why is he capable of these surprise accelerations? I mean, I, I think one is he is... Like, from a mechanics standpoint, a little bit slighter, a frame a little bit shorter, which means, looking at Lionel Messi, for example, it does make it easier to cut, and especially if you are the one then kind of dictating the terms of that engagement, you can always sort of back yourself and know exactly how how fast you need to be to get away from stuff, and you can sort of gauge it accordingly as to whether or not you're going to be able to make that happen. I think that's one. I think I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. I also think that just confidence is a huge part of it, that if you know... Like, I cannot stress this enough. If you're playing on a team and you don't feel like you're being encouraged to do what comes naturally, you are in your head way too often. And as soon as you're in your head, you're just, you're not 100% focused on the task in front of you. Whereas if you know that your teammates are like, yeah, take them on, make something happen, let's do it, you're just going to back yourself. And when you back yourself and then can actually back it up with your play, that's a double whammy that's going to make you feel even more confident. And then it kind of becomes a self-sustaining cycle. The other thing that Christian Pulisic is doing is making really great late runs into the box. Yes. And I'm going to guess that neither of us mentioned this because it is the subject of our next question. But before uh, I, we get I to that, I moved my bullet Taylor, point down so that I didn't answer it here. Yes, that is you correct. professional, you, <laughs> you professional. Before we get to that question about Christian Pulisic's um, late arrivals in the box, today's show is sponsored by artifact mm-hmm. taylor we we've each done an artifact read separately this is our first one together yep. can you believe george koresh is sponsoring the show it, it's strange it is strange i mean i guess technically for a while george was doing it when he was uh the editor of the athletic soccer but that wasn't george himself making the decision instead <laughs> G- george is all grown up and instead uh turning it's around so and sponsoring us up. we appreciate it george so george is one of the co-founders of 
Artifact. Mm -hmm. Artifact is a new company that makes personal podcasts with the people in your life. So if you've got like um, a special memory of you of your own and you want um, an audio memory or an audio artifact um, of this memory or this event in your life, or maybe someone else in your family has something like that and you want to make an artifact about it, Artifact is the way to go. They will set up and record and edit and produce a whole audio production about something that's important to you. Yeah, one of the early ones uh, George was telling me about is like uh, getting one made for I think it was a, uh, a like two grandparents on their 50th wedding anniversary. And it was like friends who knew them when they were high school sweethearts, friends who knew them in college, friends who like they met in a retirement home, basically. And it was talking oh. about them as friends and how they've evolved and changed. And like that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's almost a sort of audio time capsule if that's the way you want to go with it. But there are other things you could do. We uh, commissioned Artifact uh, to do uh, an, ep- an episode, a story about us or the kind of story of TSS. Uh, I guess it was us telling the story, but you get the point. And then also about Daryl's diagnosis and treatment, uh, which we have, I believe, both talked about now since we both already talked yes. about Artifact. Um, so the, the Total Soccer Show Artifact, I believe, will be available next week. So we'll let you know about that when that is published. Right now, uh, the, the Artifact that me and my wife Shannon recorded mm-hmm. uh, with George, George basically being the interviewer, asking questions and then producing the episode for us. Um, and it ended up being a, a, a really nice 23-minute um, time capsule artifact. I guess artifact's a really good word for it, right? 23-minute mm-hmm. um, story of my cancer diagnosis and treatment uh, to date. And I believe we have a short clip from the artifact that we can play you right now. I remember it was a visit, physician's assistant, right? After I got the CT scan, there was a short wait, you know, while they look at the results. And I saw him through a little window as he was about to enter my hospital room. I saw him take a deep breath. And I remember thinking, oh, this isn't going to be good. <laughs> I, I got to give it to George or give credit to George. He really did pick a great clip that sort of tells the story, like tells the story in a very abbreviated fashion, but also gets a little bit of humor in there. So credit to you, Daryl, I think, for the humor and credit to George for pulling that one. <laughs> That's a genuine, like, ge- genuinely yeah. a big moment in like my my remembrance i guess of of the whole thing mm-hmm. of the whole thing happening um, Tell, it's, want- it's very telling about daryl grove i'm just going to put this on a personal note that what would be the worst moment in a lot of people's lives is a thing that daryl can already sort of joke about and uh tell in a friendly and approachable manner <laughs> thank you very much mm-hmm. um, if you want to hear the whole thing go to heyartifact.com slash daryl the link will be in the show notes you'll hear that full 23 minute um, audio artifact with myself and my wife um you also if you would like to make your own artifact about anything that you want in your life or the life of someone you know um go to heyartifact.com use the code tss tss and you will get 40 dollars off your first artifact how's about that that's about good. That's heyartifact.com and code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact. Again, the code is TSS. Thank you to Artifact for sponsoring this episode. Uh, I am still sort of reeling from doing a lot of legwork unintentionally to not stumble upon the realization that that's why they've called it Artifact is because it's essentially a time capsule. I'm feeling a little silly. So, Daryl, while I recover from that one, why don't you ask the next question? <laughs> oh, before I do, since, mm-hmm. we were, since we were talking cancer, I want to yeah. get all 
this in one one place. It's okay. worth letting people know that I'm the radiation treatments that I've mentioned previously. Um, I'm starting them on Thursday this week, right? Thursday this week, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday next week. So there'll be a little less Daryl on the Total Soccer Show for maybe the next week or so because I'll be having those radiation treatments, right? Mm. Um, I've already filed all the correct forms with Total Soccer Show Human Resources, um, which is basically I text Taylor and tell him what's going on. <laughs> so there'll be a little bit less Daryl next week, but for very, but for very good reason. So please excuse me. Wait, does that mean I'm in charge of HR? It does. When Uh-oh. I want time off, when you want okay. time off, I'm in charge of HR. It's a good system. Right. It's a good system. I just, the office, which I know you've been watching, has taught me that uh, t- Toby's not part of the family. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that means that I'm not part of the TSS family when I'm in charge of HR. <laughs> Neither of us is Toby. Let's All put right. it that way. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm literally wiping my brow. So thanks for that. <laughs> Next question mm-hmm. comes from James Chucker. Um, I'm guessing you can guess the content, listener, based on what we were saying earlier. James asks, the skill of arriving late, quote unquote, seems relatively straightforward. But in Frank Lampard's comments following a recent Christian Pulisic goal, he seemed to suggest that it was an ability that could separate exceptional players from the pool. Mm. What about the movement, and in particular the timing in Lampard's system, make it so significant? And maybe this is a second question to get to after we talk Pulisic. What are some other skills in movement and timing that you keep an eye Mm. out for to separate the great from the good? So I don't I don't know if this is like what James is thinking, but just to clarify up front, when we talk about arriving late, we we don't literally mean they're showing up like at a time later than they were supposed to, and yeah, we don't mean they're arriving. Like I did for high school. Yeah, true, exactly, and we don't mean they're arriving sort of as like reinforcements to the attack. It's it's a very different entity. So that was it's, the first thing I wanted to say. It's more complicated than it sounds, right? I right. think the phrase arriving late it's not incorrect because you're like coming in. Uh, like slightly away from where all the numbers are so you are you are arriving late but that makes it sound like it's just an easy thing to do right like it's like oh the party starts at eight o'clock i'll get there at half past (laughs) arriving late it's not that simple it's way more complicated right it's not but simultaneously that was almost the analogy i was going to go with because there's a degree (laughs) of intentionality to it that like i could arrive at the exact right time but we all know that's not necessarily going to be the best thing uh, for me, for the party, for what have you. So I'm going to show up five minutes late. And that is sort of what it is. It's the intentionality of when you're arriving and choosing to arrive at the exact right moment, which happens to coincide with when you're most needed in the attack or when there is the best opportunity. That is what I believe Frank Lampard is talking about. Okay, so if we're going to go with the party analogy, then the arriving late means you arrive not too late. You don't want to mm-hmm. miss the best part of the party. You arrive just before the party is about to peak and when everybody's yep. there, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you show up as it's like, oh, maybe we need, oh, they're here. Okay, we yeah. got one more conversation. And how about this? You crucially, you mm-hmm. bring to the party yep. what it was missing. Exactly. And you allow that party to continue to flow and function as it wants to. Yes. Uh, there we go. I like this analogy because <laughs> that is a huge part of attack and play. It's about, in my mind, the fluidity of the movement of the players and of the ball. And that's why, that's why like, just generally speaking, when Barcelona are like, like moving the ball around quickly and it ends in a goal, or Brazil, or Man City, or whomever, it's why when you're watching soccer, you know that's a pretty goal. It's why my wife, who doesn't watch soccer that often, but when she does, if there's a 15-pass move with a bunch of like one-twos and one-and-two-touch passing, you can appreciate that because of the skill it requires, but also the, the precision and the fluidity. And it requires timing. And if you don't have that timing down, it means that Daryl wants to play the bottom me up out wide, but I'm maybe a yard behind, or two yards too far in front, and now I might be offside 
outside, so he's not going to play that ball. And as soon as you can't do what you naturally want to be doing in that fluidity of that attacking move, it breaks down, it slows down. And even if Christian Pulisic is maybe a yard for, like further back, maybe he can make up for that with the acceleration, but now Daryl, instead of playing that ball, has turned and gone the other way, and that opportunity is sort of dead to him. And that, to me, is what's so important about Pulisic, is that so often he manages to time it really well so that he arrives in the exact right place at the exact right moment, even if he's not scoring. It could be he's arriving there to pull a defender out, but he's still getting that job done. Or if he's not pulling a defender out, which I agree is important, I've seen him arrive deliberately when defenders are distracted. Exactly. Right? So yep. he mm-hmm. will, for example, I've seen him hang wide quite a lot on the left. Um, and he's, he waits until like the right back gets sucked into like the center, the melee, like maybe yep. even in the six yard box when everything is happened. And then when he knows that he's on the blind side of the right back, then he makes that late darting run because he knows no one's watching him because the right back is distracted. Yep. And I, I think if you want to see a really good example of this, go back and watch Tammy Abraham's goal for Chelsea. It's the third goal against Crystal Palace. Pulisic doesn't score, but he arrives at the back post. And if Abraham had dragged it a little bit wide, mm. Pulisic would have been there for the tap-in. And basically everything unfolds sort of down the right or the center right. And then this is the goal where uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek has that nice little like, clipped pass into Tammy Abraham. And then Pulisic arrives on the far yep. post, arrives late, arrives. This is the crucial part. Arrives unmarked, wide open. No mm. one's got him. Yeah. And then and so he has that ability. He he picks his spots and he knows exactly when to get there. But he also, while still doing that, isn't just focused on, oh, I've got to be in this spot when that cross comes in. It's not memorization. It's not just making sure that you arrive at a spot at a certain time. It's, again, the awareness of the moment. Because I think it was Ross Barkley's goal. I cannot remember, so I apologize for that. But there's one where he, he does the— a lot of Chelsea the, goals lately. Yeah. But he does the, like, makes a run to the near post and then checks back and goes central. And as he's cutting back, recognizes, oh, if it is Ross Barkley, is making that same run. So then he checks away again and pulls the defender away and it and so often you would see an attacker just think i'm getting on the end of this cross i'm gonna score that goal and if i score a goal i do and that's great then that it happens and to kind of have that awareness of ooh, there's probably a better angle there i'm gonna pull away it's that sort of alertness that i think is also highly valued by frank lampard so he's constantly adjusting right it's not yeah. even like he's running like a series of set patterns maybe like a wide receiver it's more that he is like just constantly adjusting to what is going on it requires instinct it requires awareness it requires knowing what the right adjustment is in the moment um and when i arrive late to a party i don't put that much thought into it i'm usually <laughs> trying to be on time and i just happen to be late Yes, uh, I am the same, and I guess Christian Pulisic is probably not. Uh, I was watching that that video of Frank Lampard explaining it, and I think the other thing I was struck by is that he appreciates, and I think it's a thing that you uh, hit on there, is the variety of where Pulisic ends up. That sometimes it's right behind the striker in central. Sometimes it's out wide making a run to the near post. Sometimes it's out wide run, making a run to the far post. He, he picks his spots really well, yeah. which again is the thing that I think is so difficult to learn how to do and is almost a thing that you have to at least bring a decent amount of knowledge to the table to then get the instruction from the manager and I'm guessing Pulisic has made it easy for Frank Lampard which is what Frank Lampard probably appreciates. Oh if we're thinking of the same video which I'm pretty confident we are then I'm I'm pretty confident that it's by uh, John Muller 
um, mm-hmm. if it's in the same Twitter feed we were talking about earlier. So I just want to give credit where it's due. Also, worth noting, uh, Scuffed. Uh, most people listening to this show will know about the Scuffed podcast. Scuffed had an episode recently where they devoted about That's 20 right. minutes or so mm-hmm. to exactly this question, um, Christian Pulisic arriving late. And they had contributions from John Muller, uh, from Susueta, and from Ty at Final Third. Basically, all your Twitter USMNT faves um, <laughs> in one podcast. So I would really recommend that episode of Scuffed. But not any of the other ones. None of the other ones. <laughs> yeah. Scuff, uh, for me, Scuffed are now in like Cooligans territory where we can pretend that we don't like them even though we really, really do. Yes, pretend. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I am pretending with Scuffed. Um, <laughs> uh, one more Pulisic question, I believe, or at least one more. This yeah. one from Derek Light. Am I going crazy or did Christian Pulisic start off as a right winger for Borussia Dortmund? <laughs> when did he make the transition to the left side and why was this so universally accepted, which doesn't normally happen in the soccer world? You are not going crazy. Christian Mm-mm. Pulisic did start his career playing on the right wing for, Christ- for, for Borussia Dortmund mm-hmm. in 2016-17. He is very right-footed, right? He obviously can use his left. He scored that goal against Crystal Palace with his left, but he's predominantly right-footed. I went back and looked, and it seems to be that basically when he was playing for Dortmund, just there were other people on the left, and the yeah. right was where the opportunity was, right? Like uh, in that first season, 16-17, Usman Dembele was playing left wing for Borussia Dortmund. Uh, then Max Philipp, remember him, was playing mm. there. And then Marco Royce was playing there. And he didn't start appearing on the left wing until Jadon Sancho took over the right wing for Borussia Dortmund. And I would say, even though he seems to be almost exclusively playing left wing for Chelsea right now, that doesn't mean he suddenly can't play right wing, right? I would argue that it's more just that, you know, Willian is there and Willian definitely prefers the right wing and Pulisic can kind of do either. So um, Pulisic's ended up filling this role on the left wing for Chelsea. Yep. I have basically the exact same answer. The only player that you left out that I had in mind was Mkhitaryan, also uh, playing playing in there, so then he has to adjust accordingly. And I think that's probably what it is. And it really is, if you watch the highlights of his goals, it tends to be right side for Dortmund, left side for U.S. national team, and then slowly a little bit of left side for Dortmund, and then left side for Chelsea entirely. So it's probably also an element of what his individual coaches are asking of him, because lest we forget, he had four different coaches at Dortmund, I think. Yeah. <laughs> really? Klopp, yeah. like towards the end of the Klopp regime. Yeah, Tuchel. Thomas Tuchel. Favre and... Uh, oh, Bosch. And Bosch. Bosch in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I forget where I read that, but it was like he's on his like eighth manager. I think it was uh, Leander Sherlockin's Yahoo article. What do we think? Do you, do you like him better on the left with his right foot coming inside? Because I'm definitely on the evidence of the last few games. It's hard to suggest maybe he should be playing right wing. Yeah, uh, I am fine with whatever allows him to continue to do what he's doing. Yeah. That's that's my genuine answer. If he goes to the right wing and 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 starts playing playing in low crosses and is excellent with that, fine by me. If he starts playing as a number ten and continues to perform the way he is, that is fine by me too. Don't much care as long as he continues to play well. I think same. I think same. Um, all right, you ready for the next question? Same as Yes. All right, Ian Brady wants to know what happened to Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. Um, Deutsche Welle Sports showed predictions from the beginning of the year, and no one had them lower than 10th, some as high as 5th. Um, and as we now know, they finished 16th in the relegation playoff, and they what tied the first leg 0-0 mm-hmm. and the second leg 2-2, yep. and survived the relegation playoff against um, Heidenheim, I believe they're yep. called, um, on away goals. So they'll be in the Bundesliga next season, but they did about as much flirting with relegation <laughs> as you can do um, without getting relegation's phone number. I feel like they went... A relegation playoff was going on a date. They went on a date with relegation. <laughs> <laughs> it's more did. than flirting. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so I, I have done some digging because I was also curious about this because, I mean, what, 2004? They win the Bundesliga, which, yes, is like 15 years ago or so, but still... Like, it's not as though uh, Werder Bremen are constantly this team that is just barely outside the relegation zone and then maybe had a couple good seasons, and then they came back to that zone. Mm -hmm. So it does feel like something has definitely happened. Would you like me to give you my thoughts, or do you want to take a shot first? I mean, I honestly, I don't have a really good answer. Part mm-hmm. of the background to this is you did text me earlier and say, I did yep. some research into Bremen, so you don't have to. Um, Thank you for clarifying that. So it didn't just sound like I was being like, I have the answer, but you're allowed to speculate, Daryl. Thank you. So, so I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I look at their mm-hmm. squad and I don't think Champions League or Europa League yep. places, right? Like Davy Klaassen was good in the Eredivisie, was bad for Everton. So we don't really know where his level is. I didn't fully expect him to maybe go to Bremen and light up the Bundesliga. And he's an example of one of their more high-profile players, right? Absolutely. Um, the fact that Josh Sargent got so many minutes this year is great for us as US fans, but doesn't necessarily reflect well um, on their mm-hmm. depth of striking talent. There's is another um, example. So maybe the predictions are wrong. Maybe they weren't better than uh, 10th or, in this case, 16th. Yeah, honestly, I think you've pretty much just hit the key things there. Number one, yes, I think the predictions were hyping up the fact that they came close to a Europa League spot. And then there was this idea that, well, strengthen a little bit, bring in a few players and you'll be right there. Forgetting that form is an important thing, that downturn in form for other teams equally important. And so if you remove that from the equation and then you look at the way they do business, I think it is, you're absolutely right, that Josh Sargent played a bunch is very telling. Because you go back to around like the start of 2012 is when... And they stay mostly consistent in one year they're going to have a negative spend, one year they're going to have a positive spend. Because, worth remembering, they're a 50 plus one club, which means their expenditures are never going to be, like we're going to talk about Stoke later on, like Stoke's expenditures dwarf Werder Bremen. But that's sort of the way it works. But if you look at like the players Bremen signed, a good example would be Thomas Delaney. They signed him for $2 million in 2016. Sold him for $22 million in, uh, in 2018, or this summer, I believe it was. So they have this sort of situation where they are able to move players on and make a big profit off of it. That just becomes less and less frequent. Aaron Johansson is a sad example of that. Buy him for five, he leaves on a free. Max Cruza, buy, buy him for nine, leaves on a free. As you start to lose those so funds... that's bad investment, don't... basically, right? Exactly. And then... As you don't recoup those transfer fees, you either commit more money in and then they don't work out, or you sort of calm it down, spend less money. Uh, so, and they've kind of split the difference there because, as you said, there is Davy Clausen, who they uh, spent a lot of money on, who has been good for them. He's been consistent in the midfield, but is not this like lights out player. Uh, and then the way you augment that is by going young and by going players that you can sort of try to find value with. And so, when you turn to young players and when you turn to loans, I think they had four or five players in their starting 11 on loans you run into the kind of consistency problem. And whereas last season, maybe they had that form, they were all bought into the same system. When you're bringing in young faces and new faces on loan who are by definition temporary, you're not going to get that same level of buy-in and that same level of fight. Is this your theory or is this something that you've read elsewhere? Mostly my theory by going through all of their transfers and looking at what they've done and then having that go with what uh, Florent, like for example, uh, they, I believe I'm correct in saying they conceded the most goals off of set pieces of, of any team in the Bundesliga by some distance. And when asked about it, uh, Florian Kohlfeld, their manager said like, there's nothing else we can do. <laughs> like, trust me, we work on set pieces all the time. And you could hear his frustration. You could see it in his face when he said that, that like, 
I don't know what it is, but some of these players, it's just not working. And I think they were able to stay up uh, means that he'll get a little bit more time. He is still there. Um, and I think Isn't maybe he that really means... really highly rated as well? Yes, and Fair very young as well. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So my guess would be that they will be in a better position next year. I don't think that they are now immediately always going to be relegation battlers. But I think they're not going to then bounce back and be in the Champions League. Famous last words, watch them win the Bundesliga next season. But I think far more <laughs> likely is like 14th or 12th in the table and I think they'll probably take that as they sort of look to restabilize and then get back to signing big players having yeah. them be successful like Serge Gnabry and then selling them on for a little bit of profit or ideally a lot of bit of profit and telling relegation um, I don't think we should see each other anymore yeah that's a, that's a that's a very important <laughs> one you got to make that phone call you don't I guess you don't want... I guess they did do that in person. They broke up with relegation in, in person. They did. There we go. Yeah. Can we talk about that just briefly? The, um, sure. the 2-2 draw that saw them like win the oh, relegation man. playoff mm-hmm. um, on away goals. The first goal in that officially goes down as an own goal by Norman uh, Toyekauf. Norman Toyekauf, own goal for, from Heidenheim for um, Werder Bremen. Just Sargent is somewhat involved, right? Yeah. It's Sargent who's bringing the ball under control as uh, Toyekauf comes in and sort of, I, I think, kind of tackles him but accidentally blasts it into his own net. How much credit are we giving Josh Sargent for this goal? Uh, are you asking me as an American or me as an actual, like, in, like semi-informed pundit? First as an American, then as a semi-informed pundit. I mean, all the credit. He say, I mean, he, he single-handedly <laughs> broke up with relegation for Werder Bremen. I mean, you've got you've to make the defender nervous. So it's still the defender making, like, uh, I'll let you say his name again, but making an overly aggressive play. But I think you've got to make him make that play. So at least some credit for Josh Sargent for being in the right place to bring that ball down. It's a thing that we would give Christian Pulisic credit for if it happened for Chelsea, put it that way. Fair enough. It's not going to show up on the uh, on the stat sheet, though. It is not. Uh, I also, I did watch that game. Sargent did not have a great game. There was a lot of sort of hold-up play that didn't quite connect. Until late in the game, I want to say in the last half an hour or so, he really had a, he created a brilliant opportunity for himself where he sort of wriggled away from um, some Heidenheim defenders, got himself one-on-one with the keeper and his shot was saved. But there was nearly a glorious Josh Sargent moment. And the moments leading up to it were all Josh Sargent's good work. So not like a great 90 minutes, but a contribution for the first goal and almost a moment of magic that was almost a second goal. Uh, I don't. I'm not saying this critically. I don't mean it as a backhanded compliment. Similar to what we were talking about uh, earlier with the way we used to talk about Pulisic, I am ready to not have to use those phrases. Like it was almost a great goal. It was nearly a moment for Josh yeah, Sargent. Yeah. I'm ready for him to start converting those. Get that same level of confidence. That same level of consistency we're well, talking about with Pulisic. And I'm. I for me, it is a, a when, not an if. And I that is definitely a supporter viewpoint as opposed to I probably should be a bit more realistic and think I'm hoping. That is a thing that happens for him at Bremen. So Mr. Matt Doyle was very into the idea that if Bremen get relegated, it might be good for Josh Sargent because they won't sign new strikers and he'll probably get a chance to bang in a load of goals in the second tier in Germany. And I think I'd really bought into that idea. But then watching the game, I definitely just couldn't help feeling like, stay up, stay up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm worrying now that now Bremen have stayed up. If they do start to strengthen for next season... One of the things they might strengthen is getting strikers who are better than Josh Sargent. They might, but it's still a, a team that isn't going to spend. Again, I think uh, Klassen was $13 million. Thanks, Transfer Market, for being uh, the American currency for me. Um, <laughs> but I think aside from that, their usual outlay is like 2 to $7 million 
in there, and that's and they don't spend a ton. They're never dropping like sixty million on eight players. So if they're looking to strengthen, maybe some of those loans become permanent, and those loans weren't necessarily a threat to Josh Sargent to begin with. And I think at best, short of them just deciding, you know what, what we need is a talismanic striker, and that's the major problem. Aside from that, I think anybody they bring in, it means Josh Sargent is at least going to be able to compete for a spot. Maybe he won't be the starter anymore, but maybe he'll get twenty minutes off the bench every game, and that might be good enough for a better Werder Bremen team. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, All right, we've got two more questions today, Taylor. But first, today's show is sponsored by our old friends at Policy Genius. Thank you to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's show. So Josh Sargent can't like buy career insurance just in case things like or pull this right now at the highest level. Maybe he wants career insurance right now in case things go off the rails. We hope they don't. But you could shop for life insurance, uh, which can be a very difficult process and a very intimidating process. And Policy Genius makes it significantly less frightening because they basically do all the work for you. They compare quotes from top life insurance companies all in one place. It's a bit like if you're going into the transfer market and you're looking for a new striker, mm-hmm. you can see all their stats and all their prices um, in one place. Policy Genius, kind of like the transfer market of, uh, of life insurance <laughs> life insurance websites. Um, so you don't have to do all the legwork. It's all there right in front of you. And you could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. If if somebody could come up with like an accurate form of policy genius, where not only that, but they like do the negotiating for you to find the rate, like this is what you should pay for this player. For a it makes sense. Yes, exactly. I think that would be the most bought into website ever in history. Yeah. Uh, but policy genius will do that for you until that exists. Policy genius will at least help you find that life insurance, uh, and you can start with them. That's the other key thing. Getting the start can be challenging because you're looking at a bunch of different sites and you're reading reviews. You can go to policy genius they've done all that legwork for you so they can just get it done quickly and you can get on your way policygenius.com they'll find the best rate and they'll handle the process completely they'll get you and your family protected and hopefully give you one less thing to worry about so try it today policygenius.com thank you again for sponsoring the total soccer show i agree we've talked a struggling german team let's talk a struggling english team shall we daryl <laughs> am i asking this question then okay austin reed wants to know What happened to Stoke City? They were a top half of the table team a few years ago with a European push, and now they're barely hanging on in the championship. Um, Austin gives a little backstory. When deciding which team to follow, um, Austin picked Stoke because they weren't a huge team and they had some Americans. They seemed well run, and they were even owned by locals. Right? Yeah, Peter Coates, the uh, co-founder of Bet365, Stoke man, is the chairman of the team. Um, Austin says, even following the team reasonably closely, I can't figure out the main culprit of this rapid demise. So for those who don't know, they were relegated from the Premier League at the end of the 2017-18 season after 10 years in the Premier League, and they don't really look like coming back up. They do not. I, I want to take us on a tangent immediately out of the gate, Daryl. Let's Because go. we've talked about this before with, with Americans choosing a team and how often it backfires when you choose a team that has a couple Americans on it. Because as soon as those Americans are gone, if there's a downturn in form, you're now supporting a team that's fallen way off. What is the most successful outcome that you can think of, of like a team having Americans or having an American and people kind of buying in and then that team continuing to be decent even after they're not around? Because Rangers, definitely not the case. Fulham, (laughs) relegated and then relegated. (laughs) Rangers went out of business and technically no longer exists. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Stoke, the same. Maybe it's Everton, just from a Tim Howard, Landon Donovan perspective. It's Dortmund. 
right? Yeah, that's definitely it. You're right. If you bought all in for Pulisic in, say, 2016, Mm -hmm. then the team stayed really good. You got more exciting players coming, like Jadon Sancho, Erling Haaland, all that. And you even get like a replacement Pulisic um, in Gio Reyna a few years later, right? I think Dortmund's constant commitment to youth and the connection they seem to have to the US means they'll always be good. They'll always be exciting and they'll probably have some sort of American pipeline. So Dortmund's the best case scenario. From a a global club standpoint, I'm with you on Dortmund. What about from an English club standpoint, though? It's just not possible. This is um, (laughs) honestly, this is part of the Stoke question is teams the size of Stoke. Mm -hmm. If they can get everything right and have like a really functional system for a good few years, you can have a really good run in the Premier League. Mm -hmm. But one day it's coming to an end. And I really think if you don't have the gigantic budget of Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs, Man City, maybe even Everton, because it's still a really, really big team. At some point, things could go wrong and you can get relegated from the Premier League. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think what tends to happen and did happen to Stoke uh, is that there is that sustained period of, ah, we finished 12th, we finished 13th, we finished 9th this year. And when you have that consistency for a while, it becomes complacency of like, well, what are we going to do next? Now, yep. are we going to challenge for Europe? And I think that is where it really does go wrong for Stoke, uh, in, at least in terms of this iteration that we're talking about, is when Mark Hughes has been there for a while, they keep finishing kind of the same spot. They and, finished ninth three seasons in a row. Exactly. Uh, and there's some great reporting by The Athletic. Forgive me, I forgot to write the author's name down, but you can find it very easily. That talks about, essentially, that Mark Hughes, after that third season, like his head really was more or less turned, that he was already thinking about is this the place for me? Is this where I want to be? The board, I think, similarly having those same conversations because we've been here before with Tony Pulis. It didn't really progress where we wanted it to. It feels like we're at that point. But instead of kind of cutting ties with the manager again like they did with Tony Pulis, they instead thought, okay, we're going to throw money at this problem and see what happens. And they basically spent a ton of money on players who were historically bad. And when you roll the dice like that, bad. if all of them go south, then you go south too. I've got a quote from a player Mm -hmm. um, which basically supports that theory. All right, this is Peter Crouch. Everybody's familiar with Peter Crouch, right? He was at Stoke for a good long time. I want to say like seven seasons or something. Um, Peter Crouch says, Stoke is the prime example of where fans and people wanted a different brand of football. We were tough to beat. People were coming to the stadium and not wanting to be there. The Mm. cold, wet, windy night in Stoke was really a thing. We tried to change for the better, we started passing and got different players in. We lost an identity that was Stoke. If you look at it now, I felt like every season we would lose a character and bring in the wrong type of character. And with every Ooh, character wow. you lose, you lose something. And around Christmas time, we were getting found out year in, year out. We escaped a couple of times. But if you keep doing that and trying to play attractive football and bringing in continental type players bit of a yep. bit of a brexity bent from peter crouch there um oh it, i can explain and it culminated <laughs> in relegation so yeah. i think crouch is backing up what you're saying he's not naming names I've, I've got the feeling that you've got some names you are correct but essentially so i looked at the transfers um stoke lost players like um lost uh, glenn whelan right i always mm-hmm. think of glenn whelan as a real mainstay of that tony pulis and then mark hughes era um He's like one of those core of the team type guys, right? They also lost some guys that had been there and doing quite well for a long time, like Onotovic, uh, Begovic, and Zanzi. Uh, Huth uh, was sold. And I couldn't tell you who was brought in. The only name that comes to mind is uh, 
Max uh, Chepu-Moting, who I remember not having a very good time. Chepu-Moting, yeah. There we mm-hmm. go, yeah, after yep. a lot of money being spent on him. That, that is a great example. And you're absolutely right that that's basically what happens, is they start sort of getting rid of role players or those figures who were going to make sure that everybody was working 100%. The, the Roy Keane figure of, like, no matter what, you know if you don't play well, you're going to hear from them. Yeah. And once you start losing those and replacing them with people who they, – they go into this in the article that they get sort of – the inside scouting reports that are basically like this player is technically amazing and if they're motivated will score a million goals but if they're not they will not work out and every single time Stokes signed that player it happens with <laughs> Berahino for example they're told he is a like he could be a major problem but he does score goals on occasion and they rolled the dice with him they had the same thing about Hesse they rolled those dice they had the same thing about Chupa Motang and Gianni uh, Gianelli Imbula is the biggest one players that they were sort of told if you don't get them in the right mood, this is going to be a problem. And they just kept doubling down on that uh, to the extent now that they still have all these players on the books on large wages. Imbula has not played for them in 32 months, is still on their payroll. Where does Shakiri fall into all this? Because in my memory, mm-hmm. he is signed only a couple years before Stoke yeah. get relegated, right? And I remember thinking it was a big deal that they signed him. And I remember some impressive Shakiri moments but I'm not sure he's all that helpful to the team as a whole, right? Maybe it's not a coincidence that they get relegated with Shakiri on the books. Once again, man, your instincts are dead on, Daryl. I think there's another uh, quote from Peter Crouch about just that, which is essentially that at, at a certain point when you're in the relegation fight, you look at what you have and you're sort of like, all right, that guy's going to score goals for us. Everybody give it to that guy. And the whole team became about Jordan Shakiri, mm. which then made Jordan Shakiri get a little bit about Jordan Shakiri. <laughs> and I think there's a, the Peter Crouch quote is something like, uh, like we like he was better at the expense of like but he he was like our best performer but he also made it a little bit harder for all of us to play our game is basically what the uh, the idea was there that, that if you build it all around him it then he maybe isn't doing some of that Pulisic work we're talking about of the tracking back or making sure he's in the right spot or or being unselfish in those moments not to say that Shakiri was selfish just that there wasn't sort of that team collective spirit that there certainly was with uh, previous iterations of Stoke. So to bring it full circle, it really is what I mentioned at the top of this, right? That um, unless you're a gigantic Premier League team, yep. if you're, a, you know, like a Wolf size or a Stoke size or, you know, that kind of team, you really need to have like a system in place and a certain ethos at the, t- at the club and everybody bought in. And that can really sustain you in the Premier League for as long as it lasts. But if you mess with that to try and become something else, you really risk losing the thing that got you there in the first place. And then you're only one relegation away from suddenly being outside of the Premier League and you realize that you don't have any sort of um, uh, permanent right to be there. Mm -hmm. Daryl, when's the last time you saw the movie Heat? I've only ever seen it once and it was a long time ago. I'm going to say 15 years ago. So I think what you have to be to succeed in the Premier League if you're a club like Stoke or of that size when they're sort of finishing ninth, you have to have the discipline of Robert De Niro in the first half of Heat. Not No spoilers, but like the whole idea of like you've got to be able to walk out the door in 30 seconds flat, that is the sort of ruthless efficiency you need of just like, you know what, this is stagnating, this isn't working. The sunk cost fallacy applies very much so, that if, if you made this signing and it didn't work, you shouldn't try to double down to cover up that signing. You've just got to own that and say, like, all right, we're going to go back to the style of play that's working. Maybe we'll try something else a little bit later. But I think the longer you sort of keep trying to cover for mistakes or to make up for mistakes and then you end up making another one, the less practical you are, the more trouble you're going to end up finding yourself in. I'd also go with Icarus, right? If that you too. 
you mm-hmm. maybe you should be happy that you're finishing yes. mid table in the Premier League. And if you try yeah. and fly too close to the sun, um, then you end up flying on wings of Shakiri. On wings of pastrami. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Seinfeld. Uh, yes, in this case, yes, wings of Shakiri. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for today's final question, or do you have anything else you want to say about Stoke? Um, oh, I do have I do have one more thing that is probably pretty important, uh, including signing a Spurs player, basically sight unseen for eighteen million pounds. Oh, uh, the is that, bigger is that one, the defender. Uh, Kevin Vimmer, Vimmer. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bigger thing that has happened since, because we're talking mostly about why they get relegated, the reason yeah. why they continue to struggle, a, a big part of that is, by all accounts, that they targeted going back up to the Premier League immediately. And to do that, they basically had to give people more money to get them to stay to fight uh, in the championship. But then you can't just spend all that money the way you would in the Premier League. So they didn't give those pay raises to other players. So you, in effect, had like six or seven players making three times or four times or five times or what have you, what other players were making, yeah. which then breeds discontent, uh, which I think Mark Hughes had a bit of a laissez-faire approach to managing locker room discontent. As long well, he, as you're winning, he it was doesn't gone. matter. He was gone by that point, right? Because he was replaced exactly. by Lambert as they went yeah. down. Yeah, but like having if you're in the championship and you've got some players on massive wages and mm-hmm. some players not, that's the opposite of when you're this like happy pirate army with Rory mm-hmm. Delap's long throws. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's but, much, but that's it's much more exciting to be part of those like the the team that's like doing something unorthodox, unorthodox but you're all in it together yeah. and you're and you're winning. Yeah, it's very different. And that's that's what that's what I mean is like with with, with Hughes because yes, you're right, he's not there, but his attitude I think was it doesn't matter like we can sign Barahino. I don't care if he if he d- like does things that I don't agree with outside of soccer as long as he's doing what I ask, as long as it's working, it's fine. As long as we're winning games, it's fine. As soon as you're not winning and then there's locker room issues and off-field issues, now you've got three major issues and that's when you part ways with Mark Hughes and then Paul Lambert and then it becomes a cycle of new managers in and out. I think my Icarus analogy really works if there's a game where they had Berahino on one wing and Shakiri on the other wing. Or just a wax statue that melted in the game. That would work too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I guess, what Kevin Vimmer did for some of his defensive displays. There we so go. So sure, that works. He's yeah. the wax statue. Mm-hmm. Final question today, Taylor, yeah. comes from Jeff Hine. Mm-hmm. Jeff Hine says, like all US men's national team fans, I'm thrilled with the experience Gio Reyna is getting at Dortmund. My question is, since he's only 17 and he's already nearing six foot two, but lacks elite speed, could you foresee a future scenario where he's played as a striker to help fill that hole on the US depth chart? Sure. That's interesting because my notes say no. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's something that I could see happening. I, I think it's more likely that Greg Berhalter finds a specific position that suits those exact skill sets that were just mentioned. So they highlight his ability while maybe don't rely on him being the fastest player on one side of the field or the other. Yeah, and I also think thinking of Gio Reyna just in terms of his height and how fast he is, mm-hmm. is just to, like, it's just to reduce a soccer player to physical traits, which once you watch more and more soccer, you realize... That's not really what's important, right? What's really important is what their attributes are or what their key attributes are. I would argue for Gio Reyna, his key attribute is receiving the ball in midfield and being able to turn quickly and go at people. And I wouldn't ever want to nullify that by sticking him up front, right? And making him some sort of target striker just because he's six foot two. We had that, we had that email from somebody a long time ago about like, if you had 11 Olympic sprinters on the field, 
would you win every game because you would just be first to everything. And not saying that that's what Jeff is saying here, but the same logic applies. Like, you don't have to be the fastest player on the pitch if you are the best on the ball or have the best passing vision. I mean, Sergio Busquets is not beating many people in a foot race, is I guess what I'm getting at. Uh, And there are many, many strikers who aren't either. Fernando Llorente being an example there. But (laughs) I think, and then, then the same goes for wingers as well. So, no, I think it's about sort of maximizing what he does well and minimizing some of those issues and is still let me clarify it's not as though he's peter crouch slow like he's not no. harry kane slow like he's Gio- got some speed Gio is plenty fast right i mean mm-hmm. i take what jeff says about lacking elite speed but elite yeah. speed is not everything right Mm-mm. yeah there's, no? there's a reason usain bolt didn't work out as a soccer player there it is right there yeah <laughs> otherwise he would be starting for manchester united and scoring all the goals <laughs> he he wishes right that is usain bolt's uh dream scenario there was a period of time when things got pretty bleak where i was like maybe that's not the worst idea (laughs) (laughs) we could at least get that guy that's fine (laughs) i think i think they tried to make it happen but woodward couldn't negotiate the transfer fee i mean probably (laughs) except except that ed woodward in those scenarios reminds me of peter griffin negotiating of like 40 bucks it costs four thousand dollars eight thousand dollars i don't know 20 bucks like it's it's whatever you want a million dollars it's fine i don't care <laughs> you think eventually you saying but was just like this is confusing mr wood <laughs> i'm going home i asked him for a number and he paid me 17 times that i'm assuming this is a scam i'm leaving <laughs> all right tyler we've got some scouting yeah. to get to as well are you ready I, I am. I completely forgot we did. Uh, I am ready now. Uh, we have four reports to get to, starting with Ira Jersey scouting Ashley Sanchez, 21-year-old American attacker for the Washington Spirit. Ooh, Ashley I, hope, appeared, I hope this is what I think it's about. It is. Ashley appeared, well, it's not, and then it is. Ashley <laughs> appeared for 20 minutes as the Spirit attempted to reduce a 2-0 deficit against the juggernaut North Carolina Courage, which they did not do. Uh, she added a little spark, but was generally ineffective. However, in their next game, uh, she showed a bit of magic to get her first professional assist in an equal against the Portland Thorns. After looking dangerous cutting in from the left channel and creating a few dangerous chances with a nice shot and two great through balls, she found herself standing at the near post on a corner in the 77th minute. I know what happened next. Mm -hmm. The service came in low toward Ashley, who stretched out her right foot, flicked it, I would say, with the outside of that right foot, up toward the six-yard box at the far post, which found Samantha Stab's header uh, for the equalizer. Well done, Ashley. Here's my question. How Mm -hmm. deliberate was that flick? Was it aimed for Samantha Stab, or was it just, I'm going to flick this on into the, the edge of the six-yard box? Uh, mostly the second one. Yeah. I'm going to guess there's an awareness that I'm going to keep this play alive, because otherwise it's going maybe out for a goal kick or going to be easily collected or cleared, and maybe there's somebody back there. I'm maybe nominally aware that I have teammates back there. It's probably not specifically aimed for her. If it was, then it's the greatest pass I've ever seen. <laughs> no, but I think that's right. I think it's like it's probably some sort of design play yeah. of just roughly knowing where the ball needs mm-hmm. to get to, right? And yep. if it's not Samantha Stab, then it'll be someone else uh, on the end of it. It really, I, I think it's a big thing for the NWSL Challenge Cup to have these highlight moments. So I love that Ashley Sanchez could contribute to this moment that has been, you know, it's gone around Twitter and everybody's seen it. I didn't see this live. Um, yeah. I saw this on social media. One thing there, I think that's interesting. Uh, I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa, but it did not occur to me that this could be a design set piece. This felt like sort of a, oh, this was too low. I'm just going to make something happen. And right. she pulled off a moment of uh, ingenuity. Do you feel like maybe there is a chance that this was master set piece theater? I would have to watch more spirits. Okay. To... Okay. I'm going to, yeah. Do you know what? I'm going to guess that you're right. You wouldn't design it this way because it's a little too complicated, right? But maybe you design it where 
there's a near post flick on, but mm-hmm. you don't design it where it has to be like a weird scorpion kick in order yeah. to make it work. Yeah. So it's maybe Ashley Sanchez rescued the design with the with the yeah. the like what would you call it innovative uh, back heel. Yep, I like that. That's, I like that. that. Makes sense. It does. All we right. agree. Next report comes from Mark Ryan, scouting Gio Simeone, the 24-year-old Argentine striker on loan at Cagliari from Fiorentina. This is, of course, Diego Simeone's kid. After a down year last year and an erratic start to this season, Simeone scored in the first four games back from the COVID shutdown and nearly scored in the fifth when a successful header was called back after a very minor handball infraction. Uh, it's kind of binary, right? Um, Cagliari <laughs> are currently 11th in Serie A and Simeone is four goals off his career high. So he needs four more to make to equal his career high. Go on, Gio Simeone. He's more likely to do it at uh, Cagliari than Fiorentina. Daryl, do you have that thing that I where like? Do you always assume that a loan move is at most a lateral move in terms of like the club you're going to? And generally, it's sort of a, like we're sending you to a lower team where you're going to get more minutes. I the only place where I don't assume that is Italy because right. there's a lot of <laughs> loans that happen in yeah. Italy that I find very confusing. It's just weird to me that Fiorentina are having a historically bad season and i was like oh but he's at this other club doing just fine so i'm sure giovanni is happy uh, on that front at the very least yeah i mean you, uh, if you heard uh, the, you had david amayel on your show mm-hmm. right and i listened to um Coucholand talking about the um the balance in the books financial fair play aspect of yeah. the arto pianic transfer mm-hmm. and i found that really illuminating in terms of what a lot of clubs are doing not just italian clubs but barcelona as well it feels like it should be illegal, but whatever. I guess it's fine. <laughs> Loopholes are fun. Oh, and by the way, if anyone found all that confusing, I, mean, I saw you tweet that like you you heard it explained, but you found it mm-hmm. confusing. I think the really important thing to note is it's not what's in the bank; it's what's on the books. Right. That's it's the what be- you're that's the best way to look at you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I do love that idea of because it's you're reporting the value essentially so it's like I, I i want clubs to just embrace that and like you and me swap teams and we were both valued at 100 million pounds <laughs> like that's how it's gonna work now i think then maybe you'd get some uh some questionable eyebrow glances it was like uh, if we then it's like mm-hmm. if we just swapped laptops and yeah. we both said that we just sold something for a thousand dollars exactly <laughs> Oh, right. Daryl, just analogies across the board today. Well done, sir. <laughs> Parties, Icarus, laptops, nicely done. Brighton, <laughs> Brighton Castle, uh, nicely done with the Lee Kang in scouting report. A 19-year-old Korean midfielder for Valencia. Lee came on in the 76th minute uh, as the fifth sub in Valencia's 3-0 defeat to Real Madrid. He was largely uninvolved until the 89th minute when he was given a straight red card for, according to Ray Hudson, trying to kick chunks the size of filet mignons out of Sergio Ramos. <laughs> Uh, this season, Lee has become more well-known for his frustration fouls than the attacking creativity that lit up the 2018 FIFA U20 World Cup. That said, he was then a second-half sub in Valencia's uh, 2-1 win over Valladolid, scoring the winner in the 89th minute. He used his close control to cut inside, shimmy past two defenders before firing a left-footed shot from 20 yards out, beating the keeper at the near post. So that's good, that's bad sort of situation for Lee Kang-in. Korea seems like a team to keep an eye on. I feel like there's a lot of like 19, 20, 21 year old Korean players that are that are making waves. I think this is yep. they're going to be an interesting national team for a little while. And speaking of, did you see the? Um, it's Korea and Japan. You're right. I, th- those are the two teams that I would say coming out of the AFC. I feel like have the deepest depth, both in terms of current talent and then like 16, 17 year olds who are going to yeah, be really, real good. Like in that little age bracket. Yeah. Did you mm-hmm. see the uh, the Red Bull news today? No. So. 
Jesse Marsh's RB Salzburg. Have... Oh, that. Yes, sorry. I think I was thinking MLS. I was thinking like like New York Red Bulls. Yes, Jesse Marsh. Yeah. Well, not just Jesse Marsh, but his RB Salzburg have lost mm-hmm. Huang Hee Chan. Mm-hmm. He is going to RB Leipzig to be the Timo Werner replacement. Do you remember we talked mm-hmm. on the Total Soccer about who's going to be the Timo Werner replacement? Mm-hmm. Turns out it's going to be uh, Huang Hee Chan um, is going to join Leipzig. While we're on the subject of things that are legal but still feel like loopholes, that feels like one of those things. <laughs> it <laughs> just, does, right? Just, yeah, we're moving up our next player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how they do it. That's how they do it. Yep. Uh, but well done to Chan. I mean, that's a big move for him to go to, uh, to, go to the other Bundesliga. Um, and maybe the same thing is in the future for Jesse Marsh, right? Because wasn't he just named Austrian Coach of the Year? He was. He was. So we, we could see him at Leipzig. That feels very unlikely with Nagelsmann there. So yeah. maybe he moves to another RB team or more likely maybe he moves to another team in Germany. Let's wait and see what happens. Let's wait and see what happens. You ready for the final scouting report? <laughs> yeah. It's you that's supposed to read it. No, it's me that's supposed to read it. Um, yeah, there it is. It comes from Drew Trammell, also known as Dreek von Truens. Mm. Um, <laughs> Drew is scouting Martin Odegaard, the 21-year-old attacker on loan at Real Sociedad from Real Madrid. Drew says, since the La Liga restart, Sociedad has struggled in part due to the indifferent play of Odegaard, who has only lasted the full 90 minutes once. This is reportedly because he has been hampered by patella tendinopathy since last October and is travelling to Barcelona for alternative treatment options. He will, like there, he will therefore likely miss the remainder of the season. Odegaard reportedly... To- reportedly told Real Madrid he is happy in San Sebastian and would like to honour the second year of the loan deal for the 2020-2021 season. That feels good to me. I like seeing Odegaard sort of play every week. Yep. So yeah. get that patella tendinopathy sorted and play a whole season for Real Sociedad next year. Yes, much like Fetch, I tried to make Odegaard playing for Real Madrid next season a thing, and that <laughs> just gets roundly shut down every time I bring it up. Just like, no, they're, they're very good and they're maybe going to strengthen, but even if they don't, He's staying on loan. Yeah, I mean, there'll come a time, right? There'll come a time. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, we get, we'd get to watch him play for Ralph Sociedad. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you to everybody who sent scouting reports. Thank you to everybody who asked questions. We're going to have another listener question show coming very soon, Taylor, right? So this show's going out Wednesday. Um, I won't be around Thursday, but there will be a show published Thursday that we'll record the night before. A whole extra listener question special. That means we are running dry. We're running short on listener questions, so we need you to send them. Go to totalsoccershow.com slash questions and send us anything you want answered. What we're not running dry on, or at least we have been but won't be in the very near future, is... MLS actual gameplay. Yes. Uh, and if people want to hear coverage of that, obviously you have uh, another ep- episode of Allocation Disorder this week. They had the emergency pod earlier. They'll have a more standard one this week. And then, as we already mentioned, you have MLS Assist. Go subscribe there. They're going to be breaking down games. They're going to be talking tactics and individual moments and key highlights and key performers and everything you need to feel very informed about our domestic league. Do you know what? I'm going to put a link in today's show notes so that you can click that link and you can go and subscribe to MLS Assist. The time to do it is now because they're going to be putting out a show every single day you will get the best tactical analysis of mls's back from mls assist if you hit subscribe on that link uh we know how much effort that takes so uh best of luck to them (laughs) i am happy that they don't have to like it it is always fun daryl to to be in the studio with you obviously it's been a while since we did that it's been so Uh, long taylor it's been like four months it really has uh but we're still paying rent this is like a good if we are in the parking spot as well. That's useful. Um, but yes, this does feel like a good way for them to ease into the daily thing as opposed to like there's definitely months where I saw you like six times as much as I saw my family. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, Tyler, on that mm. note, I will say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. And maybe you should go see your family. I kind of, I kind of just want to see your face, but right back at you, buddy. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you again very soon. <laughs>